Greetings and good day, my relatives. Welcome, I shake your hand with good feelings in my heart, and it's a good day for all of us to be here. This is First Voices Radio, and I send you greetings and strength on the east gate of Turtle Island, where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. I'm Teokus and Ghost Horse, and you are listening to an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio, and Liz Hill is a producer of First Voices Radio. And you can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as listening to the archives on First Voices, IndigenousRadio.org. And I want to let you know that there will be a new website without the Indigenous in First Voices, Radio.org. And uh, that will be coming soon. Our first guest, Doug George Canantillo, will be here for the full hour. A few weeks ago, the remains of 215 children were found at the Kamloops Indian School in British Columbia in British Columbia, Canada. And as of today, there were more than 500 more children's graves found in four more residential schools in Canada. And there were more than 100 residential schools that operated in Canada up until 1996. The Kamloops Indian Residential School was one of the largest in Canada and operated from the late 19th century to the late 1970s. The school was opened and run by the Catholic Church and until the federal government took it over in the late 1960s. Indigenous children, some as young as three year, years old, were forcibly taken from their families and put into residential schools in Canada. Same as what happened in native boarding schools in the United States. Their hair was cut off. They were forbidden to speak their languages and to see their families. Some didn't return home for many years or not at all. And in the United States, there are and were 357 boarding schools in 30 states and run by 12 religious denominations in cooperation with the U.S. government. And there are 64 boarding schools that remain open today in the United States. And countless children suffered terrible indignities, mistreatment, and horrors, including beatings and rape and other forms of sexual violence, disease, and even death. And residential schools' experiences continue to affect many survivors today. Our first guest, and only guest, Doug George Conantia, was one of those students. And Doug attended the Mohawk Institute Institute in Brantford, Ontario, and wrote about it in a recent column. Our Mohawk councils failed to protect the residential school children, published by IndianZ.com on June 14th. And Doug... Donatia was born and raised at the Mohawk territory of Aquasasne, and he attended school on and near the reservation before enrolling at Syracuse University, then the Antioch School of Law. 
Doug was a co-founder of the Native American Journalists Association before serving the Mohawk Nation as editor of the journals Akwesasne Notes and Indian and Indian Time. He worked with the late Vine Deloria Jr. on the traditional knowledge conferences before joining the board of trustees for the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. And Doug is currently vice president president of currently vice president of the Hiawatha Institute for Indigenous Knowledge based on Iroquois principles. He resides in Oneida Territory with his wife, the renowned Grammy Award winner artist Joanne Shenandoah. And now, Doug George Ganantio. Welcome to First Voices Radio. Doug George Ganantio, thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. You know, a lot has happened within the last few weeks, but this has been an ongoing uh, subject, a topic that's been rather unspoken of, but yet there are parts that work, I'd say, segments of, of this news that we're getting about the 215 graves being found in Kamloops Residential School in British Columbia. And I know that you are a survivor of the boarding schools. And there were other factors involved about how we as boarding school survivors were at the call of religion and the government, even our own governments, tribal. People have not heard these stories. And I wanted to ask you to share your story. And and I'm going to go with the headline that you wrote that why I oppose the St. Regis tribe and the Mohawk Council of Aquasasne. Yes, those are two of the elected systems in our community. As uh, people might know, that Aquasasne is uh, divided in half by the international border, and we have two colonial administrations, uh, one on the Canadian side called the Mohawk Council of Aquasasne, formerly the St. Regis Band Council. And on the American side, the St. Regis uh, Tribal Council, which was codified by New York State and imposed that Alcazessi at force of arms, as was the Band Council in 1899. We do have a traditional council, but it's kind of benign at this point. But both of those two elected systems derive uh, their authority from federal rules and regulations, the Indian Act in, in Canada, in also uh, the United States. We have a tradition of opposing uh, both systems and a uh, never-ending desire to try to unify Akazesne, but for various reasons, uh, both federal uh, jurisdictions uh, adamantly oppose the Mohawks living under one council, one administration with their own economics and their own justice system. Now, as a child, I was brought up on the Canadian side, just across the street from the St. Regis Catholic Church. In the, the uh, Quebec section of Akazasne, we have Ontario, New York, Quebec. And at that time, the church in Quebec oversaw most of the social service delivery uh, mechanisms of the provincial government. What that meant was that a local priest who happened to be Mohawk, uh, Father Michael Jacobs from our sister community of Kanawhage. He had amazing, almost dictatorial powers when it comes to determining uh, how families should live or if, he, in his opinion, a family had children who were, uh, again, according to him, at risk. 
or children who might be straying away from the church based on the behavior of their parents. If they were to go inside the longhouse and take part in these pagan rituals, then those were children at risk. Uh, if they were Protestant children, then those children commanded his attention. So he had this authority in what he would do in conjunction with the uh, local healthcare person and the only one that we had on that community at time was a non-native nurse. Uh, they would meet and they would decide that this child or this family uh, could no longer be cared for in according to their terms. And there might also be some personal issues there, some vendettas, but for whatever reason, he would then contact the local uh, police. In this case, uh, it was the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Then as a secondary measure, he might inform the St. Regis Band Council that uh, they had decided that these children were going to be removed from their homes. And when the Mounties, Mounties showed up, they weren't dressed in their red scarlet uniforms with the, long, with the large hats and uh, white lanyards. Uh, they, they were dressed in khaki uniforms with sidearms. And they would come into the home without notification. And they would uh, be accompanied by the nurse and maybe one of the, a member of the St. Regis Band Council. And then they would forcibly remove the children. Uh, the children, of course, would experience uh, great trauma but there wasn't anything they could do. The parents might consider intervening, but they couldn't because if they did, then they were physically arrested. And then that would be further grounds for the, uh, the system to declare that the family was dysfunctional and scatter them to the winds, which they did in many cases. So that arbitrary decision then would uh, uh, mean that the children were placed either in a non-native foster home, uh, or in my case, uh, taken uh, by train uh, to the Mohawk Institute, uh, located about uh, 600 kilometers away from Okazesne, or in the instance of my sisters, taken to a convent, which was located about 500 kilometers from the reservation, with no hope of return. Uh, that was the expectation. Once you entered into this, this uh, Indian Affairs uh, within their methods, and they would formally declare you as wards of the federal government, which meant that they extinguished whatever authority your parents had. The government would thereafter make decisions as to your care and your housing <clears throat> and every, your education. And once you were taken to the residential schools, uh, you were assigned a number. In my case, it was number 73. And then you were, that was sewn on all of your garments. And that was what you were referred to in documents, number 73. When I got to the residential school after this train ride, now this is one of the first times my brother and I um, had actually left a res. Uh, <clears throat> and it was, a, uh, as you can imagine, a completely traumatic experience. And we arrived at a train station in Brantford, um, uh, sometime in the evening, and not knowing where we were supposed to go after that, we were taken off the train by the conductor, and we spent the next five or six hours huddled in a corner of this very cold train station in Brantford, Ontario, and no one was there to pick us up. Not until three o'clock in the morning did, did the train station master finally figure out, well, 
who are these kids? Because we wouldn't speak to him. And then he called the school and said, I have these two native boys here. What do I do with them? And they finally showed up and they, they put us in the dormitory and, uh, uh, the the overwhelming fear and confusion uh, when we were awakened at six o'clock in the morning, which was the regulation uh, time for the kids to get out of their beds, was uh, to these loud uh, ringing of these um, these bells, these church bells, handheld church bells, and then we had to do something completely uncharacteristic for us kids who had known unparalleled freedom on the res. We had to line up like you do in military platoons. And ahead of these, uh, each one of these units, you had the teenage boys uh, in control of the younger ones. We woke to find ourselves in a company of about, I would say about a hundred or so Cree boys, primarily, uh, from northern uh, Quebec, who were flown in and then taken on these dilapidated uh, city school buses, if you can imagine them from the 50s, uh, with the hand straps and the hard uh, straps and the hard um, plastic seats, and they were taken on a two-day, three-day uh, uh, journey from their homes. Once they had been brought into a a central area and counted, and then assigned their buses, and it would take them a few days to make it along these dirt trails and these dirt roads and these rough highways all the way to uh, southern Ontario. And that's the kids who we awoke to see, <laughs> and they were beautiful kids. Uh, but one thing that struck me was they were emaciated. And uh, many years later, uh, I was asked what was the the um, over well, overarching feeling uh, that we had while in school, and uh, and and I'd say it was hunger. Uh, our diet uh, from that very morning, morning, our first meal was uh, this gruel. You remember that film, Oliver Twist. When, the, when he goes up to the master and says, may I have more? That was us. And I understood that because we were fed that watery gruel with a white piece of toast, burnt toast, and these small pads of uh, something that was supposed to pass off as butter. But it was oleomargarine. And if you go into the school today, I hope they didn't take apart the dining hall because they were renovating it. What we would do is we would take those small little pads and put it on the edge of a knife and then uh, hit that knife on the edge of a table and watch the pads stick on the ceiling. <laughs> and over the years uh, that I've been back to the school, I would look up at the ceiling of our, our dining hall and there would be these little pads paint over, painted over many times, but still there. That was the kind of diet we had. And we would march in military style, past the dining room of the um, supervisors, people we had to call house fathers and house mothers. And they had elaborate spread. You know, they had fresh fruits and, and they had vegetables and they had meals catered to them by the chefs or the cooks, I must say. They were not chefs. And, but, and we could smell that, you know, drive us, it would drive you into the sense of, of of almost insanity because you wanted that food <laughs> and instead we got this stuff and it was heavy on the um, starches and I believe led to later health problems experienced by most of the children there including diabetes and high pressure and things and heart disease but that's our first introduction to the Mohawk Institute in, in Brantford, Ontario which was built in the 1830s 
and we got there in January of 1967 was still going strong. It, it was just just a, a place of overwhelming oppression. And, and what you could feel, ghost tours, was the essence of kids who had been there before you, because we're there in 1967. It's 130-some-odd years since the school was there, and it was and still is saturated with this weird feeling, this heaviness, this intensity that you could never get rid of, regardless of where you were, even on the playgrounds. There was something there that was that was terrible. And as kids, we instinctively felt it. And in the years subsequent to that, many attempts have been made uh, using traditional Iroquois rituals to release the spirits of the children. They won't go. And what happened in Kamloops tells me why they won't go. And that is on the grounds of the Mohawk Institute. And even as I'm talking to them, I'm feeling something very strange here. Those kids, there are kids there. And we were told that there were burial sites uh, located to the east of the building, but no one believed us. In all the years that followed our time there, um, we would remark on that, but but no one investigated it. You know, no, none of the police or the Indian Affairs or these uh, the so-called Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Commission, which in my opinion is a big failure. They never acted on that. Never. No one has. Not until Kamloops. And it took the testimony of the children uh, who had uh, been at Kamloops to finally convince someone to use that technology to find uh, uh, that burial ground. Yeah, that was our reality there every day. It's it's, um, apparent that there's a lot of um, activity going on with those children and throughout the land here. And as you know, there's no border for us as Native people. I'd like to not say, but it's going to come out anyway, that they're going to find more because we know those stories. We know those stories are true, but yet there's no longer the ability to hide even the the, the main press out there. And when I go back to the no hope to return, that often was saddled with the ideas that the church took you away, the government took you away. But as you said, there was another entity involved in this, a governmental entity, our own people. And it seems that their hands were tied. I'm thinking that what came out of that is almost we were prepared for these boarding schools because after the the invasion, the settlers came, we were always hungry. And this is one thing, phrase I've heard, always hungry, always cold, always sick. Yes. You know, and this comes from my mother also. So I'm thinking she was in the boarding schools in the 30s and 40s, and it still continued for many, many years after. Once the the entities have accomplished the the three, the the government, the church, and even our own tribal governments are involved, it had to start somewhere. Our people were were put in jail. And I want the listeners to hear this. They... They were arrested for trying to intervene. Yes. Was that was that true for our governments? Could not they could not yes. they negotiate with the churches and and or the government at large? Not not at Akazesni. Uh, uh, you know, I'm writing an essay for uh, Slate magazine. And I'm starting off by saying what we were as Mohawks. You know, we were like Comanches and Lakotas and Cheyenne. We were beautiful people who had this unparalleled sense of freedom had physical beauty, 
We had a very powerful intellect. Uh, you know, we were people who influenced the history of this planet. And to descend to a reservation life, to be qualified in your physical movements, to not being able to leave the res unless you had a pass signed by the Indian agent, to live on land that become increasingly uh, deprived of natural resources, um, it, it, it just these gradual humiliations began to pile up on each other. In 1899, in May 1st, the government decided, well, we're going to do the final thing in order to show those Mohawks uh, who's in control here when they sent RCMP on Akazasni and they murdered one of our traditional leaders and they sent the rest of the governing council into jail without cause and without charges. And those people spent over a year in uh, this terrible place of confinement in Valleyfield, Quebec, which is located 40 miles from the res. And I know that because I had spent some time in jail there for acts of, of defiance. And they broke those people. They broke their spirits. And the band council, which replaced their traditional council, realized that they had no lateral movement in order to oppose this system. And with the diminishing of the traditional Mohawk economy, the compromises in our cultural values, the destruction of our self-confidence came to loss uh, within each specific family. And I remember this very clearly that the elders would tell the younger ones, there's no sense in retaining uh, this, this thing called Mohawk. Why speak the language? Why do these things? as natives, given uh, the, the blatant uh, racism in the region around Akazesni, and the fact that they suffered because of their lineage, because of who they were. They were made to feel inferior. And there wasn't any recourse in the courts, and they knew this. There wasn't any place that the heads of the families could go, the moms and the dads, the uncles and the grandparents could go in order to tell the federal government, you know, we're not going to allow this to happen. But at the same time, it was their sacred duty under Iroquois and Mohawk customs to do what they had to, to defend the most precious thing, which is the children. And they were caught in this great dilemma. You know, they could hear this, the cries of the children as they're taken from their homes in to feel to stand there and feel impotent there's nothing you can do and imagine the despair within each one of those members of that tribal or or in our case band council system but it did happen you know and as children you're not you're emotional you don't yet uh, have the uh the knowledge in order to understand this. All you can see is that those are your cousins standing by while you're being ripped from the embrace of your families and put on these trains. They went along with it. Uh, and I understand the factors, but my perspective is that we have to acknowledge that. We have to examine this and reveal it for all of its ugliness. And then once, uh, like a, an affected wound, we have it uncovered, then we begin to understand and heal from it. And that's why when I write articles saying that the Native people themselves have to take responsibility for what happened to these children, not in whole, but in part. 
And we have to acknowledge this did happen to us, that it wasn't um, simply the federal government and the RCMP coming in, but there was native element to this, and that needs to be talked about. But up to this point, it is not. Instead, the federal government is rightfully being held as responsible for these deaths, along with the various cat or Christian entities. Um, but we also have to see where's the native part, because at the Mohawk Institute, where I was, that is on Six Nations territory. <laughs> it's not in the city of Branford. It's actually on native land. But no one in that system over there or at my home community uh, went and asked children to check up on the children and to see, well, how are they being treated? And at Oshwigan, they knew the abuses within the institute because many of those uh, band counselors had also attended that school. And I was thinking that being brought up in an area of, era of high activism, you know, in the late 60s, 70s, when we, we defined Native sovereignty and we did these, these, these crazy things to stand in, in defense of our heritage, and I'm wondering why, <laughs> why is there this, this time of inaction, of passivity? And then in the late 60s and 70s, uh, suddenly it erupts across the country. Maybe it's just a question of too much for too long and something was bound to explode. I'm trying my darndest to, to, um, to get our community to affect internal healing by acknowledging mistakes were made, children suffered. And as I wrote in my column, uh, an attorney told us, according to her preliminary research, that we lost upwards of 100 children a year for the 20 years that they were considering litigation. For 20 years, 100 kids, that's 2,000 kids. Where are they? And the attorney said, no one knows. Ontario doesn't have records. The federal government claims it doesn't have records. Our own community doesn't have records. And what we found in Kamloops is this, that was deliberate. Those kids who died in many cases were murdered, uh, were considered runaways. You know, they had left the security of the residential school system and they disappeared and, and we don't know where they went. Well, it turns out they did know where they that happened to them. They were buried in this mass grave. And Mohawk Institute, same thing. Um, yes, kids ran away and they disappeared. And I compiled a list uh, from from uh, that had about, uh, I'd say about 75 Akazesi Mohawk children uh, who have disappeared. We don't know where they, we, we don't know where they're buried. Uh, we just don't know. And that's just a small yeah. faction. There, there are many others that are gone. And this is true, not only of Mohawk Institute, but of, the 100 and, uh, what is it, 100, and I have a list here, there's 139 residential schools across Canada um, throughout that uh, period. And the last one did not close until 1996. And yes, there's mass burials. They're everywhere in, the can in, in Canada. And that is why the kids won't be released until we find them and bring their remains uh, uh, back home. That's why the ceremonies are not working, uh, because what the ceremony does is it it cleanses, and not a not, doesn't absolve, but what it does is it releases, 
but how are you going to release the spirits of children that haven't been found? You can't. So you have to find them. Then you can um, do these uh, beautiful ceremonies and and ask them to go on to, to their ancestors. So at a Mohawk Institute, we need a similar um, ground radar investigation. But you know, Gold's Horse, the sad thing about this is how they discounted, even when I gave my uh, testimony before the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Committee, they discounted the stories of the kids, you know, fantasies, exaggerations. They, they just, they wouldn't listen to us. Not until this May of this year are our, our, our worst stories being uh, confirmed. And what they're going to find is that many of these kids were, were murdered. And the people who did the murdering um, <clears throat> have gotten away with it. And I've always argued that truth and reconciliation is impossible unless the guilty people demonstrate conscience. You know, like in South Africa, if you did something bad, you appear before the committee, <clears throat> you acknowledge your badness, you ask for forgiveness. But the important thing was you acknowledged you had to admit it, you know. And we never had that chance. In the whole truth to reconciliation process, not once were we able to confront a bureaucrat or a church official. And we never received personal apologies uh, from the church, in our case, the Episcopalian Anglican Church, about what they did. They sent us letters, but we never got a chance to sit across from the local bishop and say why. Never. And that's a glaring omission on my part, um, what I believe on their part. And my part is that I never got a chance to ask those people how they, how come they did what they did. Just thinking about, you know, the history from Carlisle Indian School here in the States yeah. to the Branford and out to Kamloops, yeah. you know, and yeah. the 150, only 57, you said, in Canada. Yeah. You yeah. think about the no borders, how many... Uh, boarding yeah. schools there were in yeah. the U.S. alone, and then yeah. even down in New Mexico. Um, yeah. <clears throat> and I'm thinking, this is my experience with what you just said. You know, I can name some topics, statutes of limitations. Yeah. In, the, in the early, late, the late 1990s to the early 2000s, um, yeah. there was a push to get the stories of survivors to the public. And yeah. in fact, there was a small small um, settlement made for at least, I think it's five to seven survivors, yeah. main, mainly because the courts in Canada said it would break the churches, namely the Catholic Church. They didn't hear you pass your own testimony. But now in Canada, Trudeau is involved in thinking that, you know, this is as long as he pays attention, this is going to go away. But this mm. is a long running as long as as long as boarding schools were there, the trauma continues. Yes. So yes. what are we looking to after these tragedies? Do we even know our own ceremonies or do we go quickly to that Catholicism yeah. that was forced on, on our people who have now become Christians? Yeah, exactly. You know, when uh, Sir John A. Macdonald, the uh, first uh, prime minister of Canada, uh, he was very specific in what the intent of the residential school system was, and that is to eradicate uh, whatever identity the children had with regards to who they were as Indigenous uh, people. 
to remove language, uh, to cause disruption within that, uh, within that history, uh, <clears throat> to physically displace the children, to remove them from the embrace of their families, and to teach them skills that were of little practicality on the res, but could be used in a domestic setting because many of the girls and the boys were placed on farms, uh, households, in order to become servants, secondary people. Those children, you know, the, they, they were, their lives were, were uh, disrupted, and that was all, all by design, all by design. Um, the Carlisle uh, School, as you mentioned, um, uh, was created by a former uh, 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 general in the U.S. Civil, uh, U.S. Federal uh, Army during the Civil War, and his intent, again, was to eradicate and remove Indian identity. And we have to see this in a larger context because if you don't have a viable native population uh, that is rooted in its heritage, that can speak its language, that has access to its own um, uh, traditional customs and governance, then you remove them from the land entirely. It was uprooting in the literal and symbolic sense. Uh, it was uh, as the uh, colonists teared up the great forests and the trees and defecated across this continent, so they did with the native children. That was the intent. And Pierre Trudeau, the father of Justin Trudeau, said something very interesting in 1969 when they were considering eradicating natives entirely as a separate ethnic and legal entity and removing uh, the reserve system. And that is, uh, he said at one point, um, Native people are going to uh, come to the federal government and they're going to say that we're Native and the federal government is going to ask them, well, do you speak your language? Are you governed according to your ancestral ways? Um, do you have your own Native uh, rituals? If you don't, then yeah, you may ethnic, uh, how do you say, ethnically call yourself Aboriginal, but you're not you're not really indigenous any longer and that was the game that the federal government was was playing and have almost almost succeeded in pulling off they did remove traditional governance across canada replaced it with the indian act bank council uh, they did disrupt language and that was probably the most critical thing is when you have children coming back from the schools who, who are no longer fluent or even have any knowledge of their native language, how are you going to talk to the knowledge keepers, the grandparents and, and the uncles and the aunts? They can't. How are they going to pass on the, those oral traditions uh, that define us as, as human beings? Well, well, they can't. How are they going to know the technologies of living uh, in harmony with the natural world? And it is very sophisticated system that we have when it comes to food, harvesting, uh, medicinal plants, uh, spirituality, all those things that go into what we accomplished as the world's foremost natural-based peoples, that's all gone. And it has been. It's replaced by alcohol, all his alcoholism and uh, despair and extremely negative self-images and um, a psychological crippling. Now, here's another thing that the elders have told us is that uh, we live in a combination of dream and, and, and physical reality and things that might have happened to our ancestors long ago can have an effect on us now. 
what they're now discovering in Israel with the uh, grandchildren of the victims of the Holocaust is it imprints itself on your DNA, your biology, uh, these negative experiences, and then they come to affect uh, your children and grandchildren, even though they were not physically there, nonetheless the harm is is carried over. And certainly in Akazesni, the dysfunction of my generation of residential school people is tangible. We have done many bad things on our community as a result of what happened in those schools. Uh, anything will range from, <clears throat> in my case, acts of, of social defiance, uh, in cases of my friends, uh, act of uh, self-mutilation, uh, suicide and murder. That's what we brought home with us. <clears throat> that's sad to say that's part of our terrible legacy. And that's one of the things I'd like to see us address. But healing in totality can only happen when, when the spirits of the children are released to, their, to the embrace of their, of their ancestors. And that demands a massive physical investigation uh, what worries me is sometimes we get caught up in symbolism, but not substance. So at a certain time in September, uh, kids across Canada are urged to wear orange shirts. When I see the color orange, it reminds me of uh, the Anglican Church. And the Anglican Church is the entity that was in charge of us and many other residential schools. And that's their color, orange. And I'm thinking, what the heck? They're not comfortable with hearing what I'm telling you now. You know, they're very uncomfortable hearing this and they want it qualified and they want a convenient um, scapegoat, in this case, the federal government. But, but uh, at least in Canada, they've made some attempts to provide financial um, uh, compensation. But I should tell you what that consists of because it's insulting and it's about the maximum amount is about about a, an altar boy molested by a priest in the church. It's fixed at $250,000, but that's extremely rare that anybody gets anything close to that. Instead, they gave us a singular payment of 10000 and then they made us go through this in very humiliating personal testimony process in which we had to appear before this committee, none of whom were psychologists or spiritual people, or even native for that fact. And we had to give the most intimate details as to what happened to us. And they fixated on, on two areas, uh, physical abuse, meaning corporal punishment and sexual abuse. If you told them specific instance of sexual abuse, um, a molestation, rape, whatever, then you got points. You went into a category, I forget what it was, H or something like that. Then you cashed in at the end. So in effect, they paid you for these stories. And then they demanded that under Canadian law that these stories be verified as much as possible. Because if you make a charge in Canada as a child, you have to, uh, however crazy this seems, you have to show some kind of um, evidence. We couldn't <laughs> because as it, the, the, the abusers were not going to keep detailed diaries or near with, nor were they going to take us to the local hospital to report the worst part of these things. So without that substantiation, then in their opinion, this committee, it was allegation and it didn't meet the standard of proof set by uh, then Canadian law and 
many, many, many cases were, were subsequently denied, including my own. And so I told the committee, I said, I fought physically to prevent this from happening to me. And what you're going to do is you're not going to you're now going to deny me compensation, in effect, penalize me because I refuse to show, come before you as a drunk or uh, as as a uh, as a drug abuser. You know, you're punishing me because of this. And I said, that's not right. And plus the fact that I cannot have access to my medical records. They, they delayed on this process for years. They would not give us our personal records. And when they finally gave me mine, it was earlier this year. <laughs> and it showed that I had suffered physical injury and various other things at that school. That was one of the, the vicious tricks they, they, they played on us. And I've heard there have been subsequent suicides and people who have been forced to release these uh, memories and this great shame um, that has now become uh, part of the Canadian uh, archives. Uh, there was another thing that I confronted and have confronted um, anybody who will listen to me is that is all of these things that they did to us and then the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, that was done without our approval, our knowledge or our consent. So I told the uh, Premier of Ontario then, and two years ago, I said, nothing for us without us. Let us design the program. Then you provide the resources necessary to make those programs work. But th still, no one has asked us. And only this past weekend uh, did they ask my brother to appear in public and tell the assembly in Cornwall, Ontario, most of whom were non-native, what happened in that school? You know, what, tell us, you're, you are a survivor. And that's the first time in, in my memory that uh, <clears throat> we were asked to do this. But it's an essential part of the story. It is essential. And then thinking yeah. about the, the future, as we always do, mm -hmm. uh, even as survivors, this, uh, this idea that you brought up is uh, yeah. we get caught up in the symbolism and not the substance. Yeah. And yeah. here in the States, it was, you know, the um, Black Lives Matter, but also... Yeah. They, the native people began to move and the land back, the land back yeah. movement. Then they began to take down Columbus statues and yeah. re replicate or replace them with yeah. native statues. Yeah. And when I think about the, the psychological disparity that you mentioned, the distortions yeah. of psychology. I just yeah. read recently that 12 percent of, of of the world is of European descent, but yeah. that 96 percent of the psychologies Yes. Or enforced by that twelve percent, yes. and so we we yes. we're not looking to the four percent that who we are as native people. Yeah. We're taking the quick road, the temporary road of psychology, which yes. is fairly young to the Western people. Yes. It's almost infant-like that they're trying to temporarily get by something by offering a quick solution like money, or even yes. replicating statues. But it, yeah. it, where you're going is. We can do this. We can take care of this. If yes. we get back our ceremonies, our language, yes. we won't be hungry. We won't be cold. And yes. we, we will be healthy because of that. And that's yes. a very important message that you're bringing to us today. Is there anything yes. that, that I can mm -hmm. think about or ask that's very important for you to leave to the listeners? Yeah, I would say that uh, 
uh, understand this as part of the American history, do not qualify it. Uh, there have been efforts in the United States to uh, monitor and control what children learn when it comes to uh, the issue of slavery. They've cited 1619 as a, as the, uh, as a symbolic rallying point in which the first instance in which African people were brought to Virginia. Uh, but I can say that whatever was done to the African peoples was first done to Native peoples. 1619 is unfair to us because uh, everything from the shackles uh, to the form of, of slavery is based upon um, the Spanish and their contact with Native peoples in 1492. And what they put in place with this guy called Cristobal Colón or Columbus Another great lie, he wasn't Columbus, his name was Colon. Uh, but all of that, confinement, uh, branding, forced labor, the, the sexual raping of Native women, that took place first. And only when the areas that these people, colonists, arrived at were depopulated of Aboriginal people, did they bring in Black people from Africa. And those Black people were treated exactly like Native people had been done before and what disturbs me is there's a complete lack of alliance, a natural alliance between peoples, indigenous peoples, and the descendants of the slaves. And I have yet to see that. When we undertook our great act when I was a student at Syracuse University to remove natives as mascots, we didn't get the support from any other ethnic group. Asian people didn't rally behind us. Black people didn't rally behind us. Uh, and that really is of concern to me is that we're playing into the colonial uh, methodology, you know, of separating us and keeping us apart, uh, similar to what the FBI did in the 60s. If you remember Colin Tell Pro, Colin Tell Pro, and they deliberately infiltrated various movements, uh, uh, Chicanos in the Southwest, urban blacks and native people to disrupt and cause dissension. Uh, well, we missed that opportunity then, and I'm hoping that when you do these things like remove uh, Columbus statues or remove team mascots like the Washington uh, football team and others, that will begin to dissipate those things that separate us and create this, this, this national movement that has the upper elite uh, Europeans scared to death. <laughs> Why else are they initiating all these suppress the voter movements in the American, uh, throughout the United States, so that that 12% could utterly and completely control the political and economic processes for the next few generations? We need to see this in a larger sense. So the residential school thing, it uh, shakes us up. It allows us when told rightly to finally come to understand uh, native people and why we are so passionate about retaining our heritage and separate from that of the broader American culture. It allows them to demonstrate compassion. And if healing is going to take place, it's fundamental amongst the Iroquois that there has to be an acknowledgement uh, we have to admit that errors were made, suffering was caused, and accept responsibility. Once we do that, then we can undertake the ceremonies of reconciliation and once again embrace each other as human beings. But it, it's impossible as long as this part, this critical part 
of American history is misunderstood. And remember um, that the removal of Native children is integral to the loss of territory. And if you're going to restore Native people to a condition of, once again, health and stability, you got to do one thing. You got to get back the land. It's tied to the land. We were taken from Akuzesne and, and from the Shoshone territory in Lakota and uh, Tazuki and other places as a overall strategy to divorce us from the earth. If you want to talk restoration to anybody that's listening to this, find a way to deal with your local native community and return what was stolen. Give back to what was ours then we can affect healing for ourselves and then for the planet itself. That's my message. That's a good message. And just to, to think that I've been sitting here and been listening to what would people say that, well, it's a fiction, but it's yeah. a dream too. It, it's almost like this yeah. really didn't happen, but you yeah. and I know it happened. Yeah. And who's going to believe us but the the, the, yeah. the, the creator? With that, I yeah. want to just tell you that it's a good honor to always yeah. talk with you in this good way. So on our way, we say, We're this way. We have a compassion so that others may live. That's what we want to do. Uh, we're, you, myself, others are, are, exist in many dimensions. And the spiritual being, those children are literally whispering in our ear. And they say, speak for us, speak for us. Do not allow us to go into eternity without being heard, you know, as painful as it is, as awful as it was uh, during their short time on this earth. Their voices are valid and they need to be heard, and which is why you've been given a gift you have. And, and why I'm so emphatic about, um, about uh, uh, revealing this for all of its uh, filthiness and dirtiness and, and profanities. And um, then, you know, Maggots cannot live long underneath the sun, <laughs> and these yes. are these are social maggots. These are cultural maggots, and I'm pleased the prime minister has taken this to heart, and I'm hoping that President Biden and um, our officials within the U.S. government will do the same thing, and uh, <clears throat> they'll meet finally meet with us and the president, and will ask us, "What is it that you want?" Not what the bureaucracy is in place. Uh, you people, as survivors beyond rationality, beyond reason, you should not be here, but you are. What is it that you want? And I'd like someone to ask me that. <laughs> yeah. So thank you, Doug, yeah. and for being here. And uh, we'll talk soon, all right? Yes, okay. Thanks. And that was Doug George Ganatia, one of those students who attended the Mohawk Institute in Brantford, Ontario, and wrote about it in the recent column, Our Mohawk Councils Failed to Protect the Residential School Children. He was born and raised at the Mohawk Territory of Akwesasne and attended school on and near the reservation before enrolling at Syracuse University and then the Antioch School of Law. He was also the co-founder of the Native American Journalists Association before serving the Mohawk Nation as an editor of the journals Akwesasne Notes and Indian Time. And I'd like to thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. And you will be listening to Indian City, which is a band 
of Vince Fontaine and a song called Take Me Home, highlighting the plight of residential schools and the first graves of the 250 children's bodies found in Kamloops residential schools. And the song comes from the Juno Award-nominated album Here and Now. And uh, I'd like to say thank you. They're finding more, finding more graves out there in Turtle Island, and they have not even addressed the 357 boarding schools in the United States alone. So we only talked about Canada. But thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio.
It's alright, it's alright. 